three. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. Hi, man. Two. You have lost your mind. Long tongue heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Put on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. Hi, man. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. We're your hosts, Brian Edwards, Nathan Cravat. I'm J.C. Groves. It's good to be here with you on another episode of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Hey, we want to thank our sponsor, Free Life Soap. She is an incredible sponsor of the podcast. Miss McCribbin has been keeping our chin curtains looking good with the Free Life Beard Oil and our bodies smelling good with some soap. You can check them out today by going to recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Free Life Soap tab. Use your promo code RFP and get 20% off of your order. Fellas, how are we doing this week? Doing great, man. How are you, Brian? Man, I'm doing fantastic. Just glad to be uh, recording again, even though it's just like a short intro. Uh, I've just, it just reminds me, man, I've missed you guys. And last week, getting into the studio and being able to record and, and then hearing the content of that episode and the feedback from that wow. episode, it's kind of re-energized me. It's got me fired up all over again. That's awesome. I feel exactly the same. And Matt Dudley did such an incredible yeah. job. And, you know, we were planning on having him back today for the gloves off episode. I mean, he, uh, he, he set that up for us. We were planning on doing it. And then Matt Dudley's household got struck with the COVID. The he got COVID. the Rona. Yep. He and but, one of his boys have it. So, uh, but we can report, them. we can yeah. report that they are feeling better. So yeah. he, he said as of yesterday, they're feeling back to normal. So, yeah, and that's awesome. But the, the fallout of that is we didn't have time to get in the studio. He wasn't feeling well enough to record the second episode. So we've had to call an audible. And it's a good audible, though. Yeah. Well, you know, this past week I found out actually somebody who used COVID for good. This person is a really, really picky eater and their diet has consisted their entire life of the worst of foods when they got COVID and they couldn't taste. They were eating salads and edamame and spinach <laughs> and all kinds of things that they would otherwise hate. And so while they had COVID, they ate the healthiest they've ever eaten in their whole lives. Their body Brian, was like, I'm, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I must fit the category of that type of person because I don't even know what that second food you said was. I've never even heard of that. Edamame? What the heck is oh, that? Oh, man, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. It's soybeans Love it. in a pot is with it salt on it. Yes. Oh, so, it's so something good. healthy tastes good. Yeah, seriously. The best ones are down at PF uh, Chang's. You can get them down there. Oh, it's so good. Edamame. Man. You need to go get it. And I'm, I'm going to have to try it out. Next time you and Sluter go have sushi, <laughs> y'all need to have some edamame. <laughs> That's and, awesome. And, uh, Nathan, if you get some avocado toast and eat it with edamame while drinking <laughs> a uh, – do they call it free market coffee when – Fair trade coffee. You are officially yeah. a trendy. Fair trade. Yeah. No cap. You'll be bussing, bussing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> hey, guys, I, I love our podcast because as a co-host, I learn new things every week about myself and about you guys and about the whole trendy universe that I live in. I yeah. love reading reviews on, on the Internet because you learn a lot about yourself. That is oh, yeah. for sure. 
I yep. spent some time this week and just went on Google and typed in the podcast name and read hundreds oh of reviews. There's there's some great people out there. Yeah, there, there are, and, and and we're amazing as well. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> well, here's the I thing. I don't even like myself after reading all that stuff. Not at all. <laughs> no. Well, here's the thing. People are going to find out more about us over the next several weeks as we finished up the King James issue, and now we're going to be diving into alcohol and music and yeah. all kinds of things. JC, what all are we going to be talking about? So we've got we, – we talked about this at the first of the year, but we're getting ready to jump into four episodes that we're going to call the untouchables, things that nobody really talks about in the church, but they're, they're kind of the elephant in the room. And so we've got four episodes that are coming up. We're going to be talking about dress and dress code. That's been one that has been a big stickler in the independent fundamental Baptist world. Um, we're going to have uh, a good friend of ours uh, named Billy Mills. He has a ministry right now, but we're going to be talking about porn and porn addiction, especially with all the stuff that's been coming out in the news, we know that folks fall every single day uh, with this addiction. And so we're going to tackle uh, this addiction, this porn addiction, talk about that. Um, I'm excited about talking about alcohol. We've got some friends that are going to be coming on with us um, and going to be talking about that podcast specifically. They have a podcast designed for that. And uh, so we're going to bring them on as some guests as we tackle the subject of alcohol grape juice and then we're going to talk about worship because worship we hear it all the time in the ifb it's those 7-eleven songs but i'm excited about the worship we've got some guests that are going to be coming on with us brian you want to tell us who the guests are going to be yeah one of our guests is going to be a great friend chris clarney he's one of the premier worship leaders singer writers in in all of of worship music man he just released a brand yeah. new song and then he has a new one coming out guys and he hits notes on that song that he, he shouldn't be able to hit. It's just absolutely unbelievable. And two, he is a hoot. That guy is hilarious. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, his dad was a youth pastor, guys, and he grew up, um, I guess, in youth ministry his whole life, spending around teenagers. And uh, and so now he's he's got all the great uh, humor and jokes and, and cut up and all that stuff to prove it. He's an awesome guy. Can't wait to have him on. He is definitely an OG worship leader for sure. I'm excited about those episodes. It's going to be huge. We've been talking about it since the beginning of the year, but we've, we've had so many other things come up and great interviews. And, and the KJV issue, which was one of the big four, originally mm -hmm. started as big three, turned into big four, and <laughs> yeah. then the KJV turned into four <laughs> episodes all by yeah, itself. It so that just <laughs> this thing's taken on a life of its own. So we're not responsible for our actions or our decisions. It's just this thing's just happening in front of us. Right. And we don't even know what's going to be next. Right. But, JC, I'm super excited about the meetups. Why don't you tell us about those? Man, we've got two incredible meetups coming up. And this is this is not an opportunity for us to be rock stars, as some have claimed on Twitter this week, <laughs> where we're wanting our fans to show up and see us and we can sign their Bibles and take selfies. Man, this is really an opportunity for us to meet folks that we see on social media that like the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, that are part of the RFP family, and it's just the time to get together in community. Life is not meant to be lived alone. It is best when in the context of community. And so we've set up two dates, one here in the south in Statesboro, Georgia, on June the 4th, and then one in August, the 26th, 27th, and 28th in Bourbon, Missouri. And uh, you can go to recoveringfundamentalist.org right now, click on one of those tabs and sign up and register. Um, it is, it is going to be an incredible time as we just gather together and worship and 
extend the Christian right hand of fellowship and and uh, <laughs> have com- have a good Dinner time. On the grounds, baby. there it is. I don't. Know. I was going to say jolly gay old time, but that doesn't fit. So it's going to be it's going to be a good time for sure. Well, JC, oh, you just man. said something that just it demands that I rant for just a second. Please rant. I get I get so tired of them trying to say that we're trying to be celebrities. If we're trying to be celebrities, we absolutely suck at trying to be celebrities. <laughs> this past week, I watched a little bit of a camp meeting. I wish I hadn't, but I did. And it's amazing mm-hmm. they say we're trying to be celebrities, but the main speaker for that night, who's one of the biggest showboats in the history of camp meeting industry, he's up. He can't shout unless he's in front of everybody, looking back at everybody to see their reaction to what he's doing. And then you've got the guy who's the center focus of everything, who has to be in every frame and every shot constantly. He can't stay out of the center of the stage with all of his antics and everything else. And he's not looking up at all. He's constantly looking out to see if the people are responding to his leadership as he is the circus leader and leads the circus. And so people are going to say we're trying to be celebrities, but I'm sorry, we're not spending mad money on suits and we're not driving around in crazy cars. And so get off my back with the trying to be a celebrity. Brian, come on. That was was straight fire, yo. That was dripping hot. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So speaking about straight fire – this week, as our Audible, we've got Matt Dudley coming on to preach a sermon. And we are so, – so here's – let's set this up real quick, guys. Over the past month and, – and let's just say over the past year and a half, but over the past month especially, we've been called – help me with this list – God-haters. Stupider. Stupider. Compromisers. Sodomites. Liberals. <laughs> that. We've got yeah. – um, a different spirit, a different savior, different mm-hmm. scriptures. Yes. Um, what was the one that apostates. was this week? Apostate. What was the one this week that said we're leading people? Um... I'm just glad they listened to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast and learned the word apostate. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so all these things that have been said about us, not only about us, but anybody who is part yeah. of the RFP fam which Matt Dudley is mm-hmm. one of the main RFP fam, and this dude is one of us. He's a brother. Yeah. So all the things they're saying about him, this sermon should be a litmus test to see what a compromising liberal, God-hater, stupider, you know, all fill in the list. Yeah. No longer fundamentalist, rejecting the fundamentals, recovering from the fundamentals, which we've never said, but they put that on us because they don't understand you know, nuance. Mm-hmm. So anyway, let's see what a, a compromising liberal preaches like. Surely the whole message has changed. The gospel's changed. And, and not just any sermon, his Easter sermon. Let's go. This is wow. going to be so good. It was awesome. Let's jump right into it. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Let's go. All right. You can take your Bible. Go with me to Matthew chapter 28. And so this is the dre- as dressy as I get. Just take it in for a second, because next week it'll be holes in my jeans and T-shirts again. But I do, you know, I, I think you guys know me well enough to know I don't take a whole lot in life seriously. But, uh, man, I, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrated the Lord's Supper this past Wednesday uh, as a church. Had an amazing turnout for that. Such a sweet, sweet spirit. 
uh, in this place. And, um, you know, of all the things in life that, that I make light of and laugh at, uh, that's something that's very near and dear to my heart because it's real to me. It's not a fairy tale. It's not just another holiday that we celebrate. You know, Christmas is different. Of course, Christmas, we celebrate the, the birth of Christ. But we don't know that Jesus was born on December the 25th. We know that he was born into the world, and we celebrate that, and we rejoice in that. But we do know for a fact that our Savior was crucified 2,000 years ago, the week of the Passover. And that's this week. If you're a Jew living in Jerusalem or anywhere around the world, they are celebrating Passover week. And this is the very week that Christ was crucified and risen again. This could be the day. Of course, the way calendars play out, we don't know specifically that this is the exact day. But it's very close to the day that Jesus rose again. So we have something to celebrate and rejoice over, and I'm just glad that you're here with us to do that. So we've been in a series uh, the first quarter of this year called The Jesus Revolution. I say the first quarter, we're actually going to be in this series all year long, but each quarter we're taking a different gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and breaking down the gospel. And so we've been looking at Jesus in the gospel of Matthew for the last three months, and, uh, and so today is the really the crescendo of that series as we land in Matthew chapter 28. I didn't exactly plan it that way. It just worked out that we ended up at the end of the book on Easter Sunday. So I'm excited about that. I, I wish I was smart enough in that scheduled to detail it out that, that distinctively, but I think the Lord worked that out for us in spite of me. And so read with me in Matthew chapter number 28. We're going to start in verse number one, Matthew 28, verse number one. It says, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went quickly out from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you'd put your hand of blessing on this service. Lord, I pray that you would touch every heart. Father, I come in a place where I feel very inadequate to do what needs to be done because I understand that we need more than to hear some good songs and to hear, you know, maybe possibly a mediocre message from a mediocre preacher. We need to hear from the Spirit of God. We need heaven to move in this place. God, I pray that you'd open the windows of your glory and pour your spirit out, up, out upon us today. Father, please touch every heart. I pray that you would leave no stone unturned. Continue to roll back stones from the tombs in our lives. Set captives free. We'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the context of Matthew chapter number 28, we understand that three days ago the disciples watched in horror as Jesus was arrested by a violent mob in a garden called Gethsemane. They stood speechless as that same mob brought Jesus before the high priest of the day, a man by the name of Caiaphas, and began 
heaping accusations against him, saying that he was uh, causing insurrection toward the Roman government, saying that he was violating their Jewish traditions by his teachings, by his doctrines, and began trying to find fault in the one they called Jesus the Nazarene. Caiaphas, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, decided that they would hold Jesus overnight so that the next morning he could stand trial before Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor in those days. They put Jesus in a pit, in a dark dungeon that night, and held him there captive. The next morning, they brought him before Pilate. They ridiculed him. The soldiers stripped him of his garments. In that hour, Jesus was beaten. The Bible tells us beyond recognition, big Roman soldiers doubled up their fists without even holding up his hands, trying to block the blows. Jesus was beaten. They took a reed and smote him with it and then they placed it in his hand like a fake royal scepter they bowed their knees and began mocking him crying hail king of the jews they plaited a crown of thorns and placed those thorns violently upon his brow and then with that same false royal scepter they took that reed and drove the thorns down into the head of the lovely lord jesus christ after the beating the ridicule the mocking the false accusations They tied the hands of our Lord Jesus and bound him to a whipping post. I think when we try to capture in our minds what a whipping would look like, we think about somebody being whipped with a bullwhip. But in those days, the Roman government, the Roman soldiers had perfected the art of execution. They saw it as a sport. It was something that they enjoyed very greatly. And they had fabricated what we now know historically to be called the cat of nine tails. It was literally a whip with nine strands coming off of it. And in the ends of those strands, they would braid uh, uh, shards of bone and metal and rocks, anything that they could find that would tear flesh. And they began beating Jesus as his flesh was distended upon that whipping post. The Bible tells us that in those days, or rather tradition tells us that Jews couldn't receive more than 40 lashes. So Jesus was lashed with the cat of nine tails 39 times as they tore the flesh from his back and his body was literally tattered and torn and fetters were plowed into the back of the Lord Jesus Christ. After Jesus was beaten within inches of his life, Pilate brought him back out before the crowd and he said, what would you have me to do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Now, we've been, we've been observing throughout the Gospel of Matthew how often Jesus encountered religious people. In fact, if you've been here throughout the series, you might be like me. I sort of got tired of picking on religious people because it seems like every page that we turn in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was encountering religious people, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, and they were always haunting him everywhere he went, asking him stupid questions, trying to catch him up in his words. Well, as we come to the crescendo of Matthew in chapter number 28, we find that it was this same religious crowd that brought Jesus before Pilate, and because their Jewish laws did not allow for execution, they brought him to a Roman government uh, governor so that he could execute Christ. And as Pilate stands Jesus, already beaten, already tattered, robed in garments of shame, into their presence once again, that same treacherous mob said, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. 
He said, what would you have me to do with Barabbas? Barabbas was a thief and he had caused a murder during a time of rebellion toward the Roman government. Someone who had actually done what they were accusing Jesus of doing. Uh, Pilate said, what would you have me to do with Barabbas? They said, let him go free and crucify Jesus. I think it's noteworthy to point out the fact that the name Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, means son of the father. When you see uh, Bar before a name in the Bible, such as when Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 said, Blessed art thou Simon Bar-Jonah. He was referring to the fact that Simon Peter was the son of Jonah. Simon Bar-Jonah means Simon, son of Jonah. So the name Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, means son of the father. In other words, he was his daddy's boy. You ever heard the saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? The significance of that is that Barabbas represents you and me, every single one of us. Because the Bible says that sin came into the world and sin passed down from generation to generation to generation. Barabbas was in the condition that he was in because that was the condition of his heart. And he stood guilty, deserving to die. He'd been convicted and found worthy of execution on a cross they had already hewn out a wooden cross for him to be executed upon but that day the Jewish the, the Jewish people the religious people of Israel said release Barabbas let the broken one go free and crucify Jesus that was Barabbas's cross that they laid at the feet of the Son of God and so Pilate being a politician willing to please the people said, we will crucify this one they call Jesus. The soldiers placed the cross made for Barabbas on the shoulders of the Son of God and pointed toward a skull-shaped hill just outside the city walls of Jerusalem called Golgotha or Calvary. And Jesus carried our cross. I've walked those cobblestone streets in Jerusalem. They call it the Via De La Rosa. I've walked the Via De La Rosa on four different occasions following the pathway that Jesus carried my cross. And I'm here to tell you, it is quite an experience to try and go back in your mind and, and understand that the great God of heaven, the one who made the glories, the one who cast the stars in place, the one who scooped out the canyons and made the mountains so high, that same God took upon himself the form of a servant was made obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Isaiah said, as a lamb before his shearers, he was dumb, meaning he did not even open his mouth. And when they placed the cross on his shoulders, Jesus just began dragging your cross and my cross toward Calvary. When he got to Golgotha, I believe personally that Jesus simply laid down his life. I don't believe the soldiers had to grab a hold of him and and, and, and with force pressed his arms down on the cross. The Bible says again he laid down his life willingly. I believe Jesus willingly laid down on the cross as the soldiers drove spikes into his hands and into his feet. And then after they had fastened him to the tree, they lifted the cross up vertically, dropped it into a hole, and Jesus was left there positioned between heaven and earth to die on the cross for the next six hours. From 9 a.m. till 3 p.m., Jesus hung on the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. I told you a moment ago, Jesus hung on the cross from, for six hours, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. 
When that verse we just read a moment ago says from the sixth hour until the ninth there was darkness over the, all, over the land, that means from 12 o'clock noon, high noon, until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the sky became black as sackcloth. That's not insignificant, by the way, so it's, it's an anomaly, by the way, for that to happen. It doesn't normally become dark uh, in the middle of the day, but on that day when Christ the mighty maker was crucified for man, the creature sins, the Bible says that the sky became black as darkness. I believe the significance is that for the first three hours, Jesus suffered all that man had to throw at him. All the cruelty, all the violence, all the hatred, all the bitterness, every vile thing that's ever been born in the, in the most depraved human heart was inflicted on the Son of God for the first three hours. But what happened at 12 o'clock was far more grotesque and so, so devastating to the Son of God that the Father literally shut the lights off on the world. Because we're told that Jesus, who never knew a moment of sin, was made to be sin for us that we could be made righteous in the eyes of God. It was this moment, listen to me, I believe with all my heart that Jesus was not afraid of the cross. I don't believe he was afraid of the cat of nine tails. I don't believe he was afraid of the Roman soldiers. I don't believe he was afraid of the crown of thorns. But for three, for three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, just prior to his arrest, three times Jesus said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Jesus wasn't afraid of physical death. He understood that was only going to last a few short moments in, compar in comparison to eternity. I believe what Jesus agonized over in the Garden of Gethsemane was the fact that he was pure. He was perfect. He was holy. He was the spotless Lamb of God. And yet he knew he was going to have to drink the cup of my sin. He knew that every vile thing that I had ever done and every vile thing that you have ever done, I want you to understand today that Jesus didn't die for you on your best day. We often talk about the value that God places on a human being upon, upon one solitary soul, and that is very true. But when we think about that, think about the fact that God doesn't value you at your best. God valued you at your worst. And when Jesus died on the cross, the proverbial cup of our sin was placed to his lips. And at 12 o'clock noon, I believe, is when God the Father laid all the sins of the world upon God the Son. And I believe that's exactly why the sky became black, because even mortal eyes couldn't behold the agony that Jesus went through when he had to become the darkest day that I've ever lived on this earth. You think of every vile act that's ever been committed throughout history, every murder, Every rape, every person that's ever been molested or abused, you think of the worst of the worst that humankind has inflicted on its own, and that's what was placed on Jesus that day. The sixth hour until the ninth hour, the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God. The prophet Isaiah illustrated it in these words in chapter 53. He said he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what happened at 12 o'clock on, on crucifixion day. The Father laid all of our sin, all of our burdens, all of our brokenness on the Son of God. And in Matthew 27, verse number 46, the Bible says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everywhere else in the Gospels, when you read Jesus, God the Son, communicating with God the Father, he always refers to God as Father. You'll find examples, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. When it refers to the Father, when it refers to, to, to God, to his disciples, the apostles, he always refers to him as Father. This is the only time in the Gospels you'll ever find Jesus referring to God the Father as some separate being from himself. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Judas betrayed me. Simon Peter denied me. John and the other disciples ran when the soldiers bound my hands and carried me from Gethsemane. But Father, why? God, why now in this moment have you left me alone? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible says that God can't look upon sin. And when Jesus became sin for the people of the world, God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And for the first time in eternity past and for the last time in eternity future, God the Father and God the Son were separated. And Jesus was left there hanging alone, suffering, writhing in agony and the physical pain, paled in the presence of being forsaken for you and for me. For three days and three dark nights, that grisly scene tormented the minds of his disciples. I believe every time they tried to close their eyes to sleep, all they could see was that bloody visage of Jesus hanging on the cross, they couldn't believe their eyes, the fact that the one they'd pinned all their hope in, the one that they had left their families, they'd left their homes, they'd left their lands, left their vocations, quit their jobs to follow Jesus. And now the crescendo of his life, all that they can see in their minds as they close their eyes is this, this, this bloody image of him hanging on a cross, weak and broken, naked and shamed. And all their hopes were crucified with him on the cross. All his promises, everything he said he was going to do, were now vanished in their hearts. And the light had gone out of the sky for the disciples. But wait a minute. That was three days ago. We're in Matthew 28. And it's resurrection day. And when Jesus rose from the dead after three dark days and three dark nights, and the angel said to the disciples, why do you seek the living among the dead? In that very moment when they realized that all he had promised was not a lie, all that he told them he would do, he performed, he did it. Now every promise of Jesus, every vision that he had given, that had given to them came back to life in their hearts, and they were resurrected as he was resurrected. And on that third and that final morning, Jesus, the rock of ages, walked up out of the grave alive, proving to the world forever that he is and he was the same 
God that he always claimed to be. Not only could he heal the blind, not only could he raise the dead, he could conquer death on behalf of all mankind. It's resurrection day. Jesus died three days ago, but now he lives and he breathes and he's all that he claimed to be in 10,000 times more. This was his plan from the beginning. This was his purpose. This was the pinnacle of his life. This was not the end. It was the only the beginning of a new era when now through his sufferings, now through his life, he had abolished the law. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He took all the commandments, all the things that God said, thou shalt not and thou shalt, and all those little, those little details and those jots and the tittles of the law in the Old Testament. Jesus took all of that, performed it perfectly in his earthly life. Then he took all the brokenness, all the bad stuff that I ever did, all the rotten stuff that you ever did. He took all of that into himself. And he died and he put all of my past and all of my guilt and all of my shame in that grave. But when he rose from the dead, all he brought with him was glory and hope and forgiveness and power. And I'm here this morning to tell you, it's not pie in the sky. It's not a fairy tale. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living. Whatever men may say, Jesus is alive. He lives. He breathes. He meets all of our needs and fulfills all of our hopes, and where there's emptiness and brokenness, Jesus comes and gives life. As many of you know, I visited Israel on four different occasions, going back, Lord willing, this December. Got to get a COVID shot first. But uh, I've been there four times, and every time I visited Israel, we go and visit the garden tomb. The garden tomb, it literally is a garden, by the way. There's a spring there. We know that Jesus was buried in the tomb of a man named uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a very wealthy man. You would have had to be wealthy to own such a garden in those days. Uh, frankly, you'd have to be wealthy to own it now. It's prime real estate just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. But uh, it's owned by an evangelical group of Christians. And we visit there every time. We visit the garden tomb. And every time I visit there, I have a different experience. On two of those occasions, uh, I've had the privilege to go to the garden tomb with a Jewish friend of mine. I've got a buddy in Israel, I actually texted him this morning and said, hey, I'm going to be talking about you today, so you better tune in. He watches us from Israel. And, uh, but I got to visit there on two of those four occasions with my buddy Itamar. Itamar is a, is a Jew born in Israel, born into a Jewish family, raised up in all the traditions of, of Jewish law, all of their customs. He had never known anything, even though I've always found it kind of, kind of maybe disturbing that Jewish people can live in an area where so many biblical prophecies were fulfilled very specifically and yet still miss it. The Bible says blindness in part has happened unto Israel. It, it boggles the mind when you visit, if you ever go with me to, to Israel, I'm trying to make, make way for you to go this, this December with me. I'll give you more information about that later. But, but what I'm saying is it, it, there are so many pieces that fit together when you're there. Well, several years ago, Itamar was escorting. Itamar works in private security. Uh, he's a former IDF soldier and uh, worked with the highway patrol. He actually gave me a highway patrol badge, so I wear that around Israel. Uh, the Muslims appreciate that when I'm over there. Imagine a white guy. I got an IDF jacket with a with a with a Israeli Highway Patrol patch on my shoulder. It makes everybody else in the group nervous. 
that I wear it, but I wear it proudly. But anyway, Itamar gave me that patch. He used to work with the Highway Patrol. Anyway, he now, he now serves in, as a private security agent uh, and escorts uh, different dignitaries and people who come to Israel. He actually does some private security here in the States. He flies to New York on a regular basis. Anyway, uh, several years ago, Itamar was escorting a group of pastors, uh, guys that I actually know. That's how I met him, but uh, Itamar was escorting a group of pastors. They were meeting with, with some of the Israeli government and, and going through different things. And, and uh, as he was escorting them around, now think about this, this Jewish guy, right? Uh, raised up a Jew. <clears throat> uh, that's all he'd ever known, laws, traditions. It's more of a family thing to him. But, but he, he wanted to get these American pastors to the garden tomb before it closes. I think, if I remember right, it closes at about 7 o'clock in the evening. And so he's escorting them to all these different places, but he keeps telling them all day. None of these, none of these men had ever visited the garden tomb. And he kept telling me, he says, you have to come see. You have to go to the garden tomb. i got to get you there. And so he's, he's rushing around, right, like getting them to all these places. And, and I've heard him tell the story, and I've heard them tell the story. Their side of the story is they were scared for their lives because Itamar Mar was driving like a bat out of hell, weaving through those little narrow streets trying to get them to the garden tomb before it closed that night. And, and they pulled up right as it was about to close. They were closing the gates, about to, about to close up shop for the day. And Itamar goes up. He's real good about flashing his, his uh, security credentials. He's done that for me several times. Got me in some places I probably shouldn't have gone as a Gentile. But anyway, uh, but he flashed his security credentials. And he said, oh, I've, got these Jew- I've got these American pastors, and I want them to see the tomb. And he just, he just had to get them in there. And so he talked to the people. Uh, he persuaded them in his own little Jewish way uh, to let him take those pastors in to see the garden tomb. They walked in, walked down that pathway through the garden, went to the empty tomb, observed it, uh, and, and then walked back out. They spent about five minutes in there. But on two of those occasions when I stood there with, with Itamar, he took me to a place just outside the gates. When you walk into the garden tomb, he took me to a place just outside the gates, and he began to tell me this story. Part of it I just told you. Here's the rest of it. He said, Brother Matt, he said that night, I wanted to get those pastors to the tomb. I wanted them to see it for themselves, he said, but as we stood there, as they stood outside that tomb, I'll go ahead and relieve you of having to hear me try to do a Jewish accent, but he said, he said, as we stood there outside that tomb, they began to share with me the story of the gospel and the purpose for why Jesus came to the world and that he's not just the, 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 the savior of the Gentile people, but he's the Messiah of Israel and he was born a Jew and was rejected by my people and died on a cross and they shared with me how he died for my sins and every time he told me the story, big tears began streaming down his cheeks and he said, he said right here, Brother Matt, right here I accepted Jesus as my savior. And he said that tomb became, a, became real to me and I was born that night again. And Itamar was later baptized in the Sea of Galilee. Awesome story. He loves Jesus now. But I said all that to say this to you. The cross of Christ, the burial, the borrowed tomb, the resurrection story has to become personal to you. It has to become real to you, man. This isn't just about Easter bunnies. It's not about Easter eggs. It's not about family, even though I'm looking forward to that ham my wife put in the crock pot when I get home. But it's not about that. It's about the fact that God became flesh. God became a human being. Think about the invisible, omnipresent, omniscient, magnificent God of all creation. That very God brought himself down, condescended from his throne of glory, and came into the world born into rejection, lived a life of suffering and poverty. 
died on a cross, was buried for three days, rose again from the dead. Why? So that we could celebrate once a year? No, so that we could know that Jesus lives, so that we could have life, so that in Christ there is now therefore no condemnation to those who put their faith and their trust in him. And I came here this morning to tell you, it's not about religion, and it's not about you doing good, and it's not about you keeping the law. It's about you trusting in Jesus by faith. What he did for you on the cross, it has to become real in your life. It's got to become real to you. It's got to become personal to you. You have to see yourself as the one that Jesus died for. You have to recognize that if you were the only lost, broken person on the face of this earth, Jesus would have done all that he did because he loves you that much. He loved you with his life. It wasn't nails that held Jesus to the tree. He could have come down any time he chose to come down. It was the fact he looked ahead in time. And with eyes of love and eyes of compassion, he saw your need. And he saw my need. And he knew I couldn't be good enough. Listen, I can't even live up to people's standards. Much less the standard of a thrice holy God. And so Jesus with a cross, two pieces of wood and three rusty nails, bridged the gap, the chasm that we could never cross to give us access to the Father. He rose again on the third day to give us new life. And in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. If you'll trust in him, listen to me, this is the easiest thing you will ever do in your life. It's so easy. Listen to me. The gospel is so simple. Being saved is so simple that we've complicated it through the years. We've built religions around the cross. We've built ideologies. We've taught that, well, if, you, if you're going to go to heaven, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. You've got to be baptized. You've got to take sacraments. You've got to be a good person. You've got to live a good life. You've got to do all these things. My question to you is this. If we could do that to get to heaven, why did Jesus die on a cross in such agony? Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And because of that, he gets all the glory and all the praise. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That means you don't go by way of religion. You don't go by way of good works. You don't go by way of baptism. You don't go by way of sacraments. You go by way of the cross. It's the blood of Jesus alone that saves us from sin and sets us free. And so I'd be naive, I'd be foolish to think that everybody in the room this morning has made that choice, made that decision. You know, when Jesus resurrected from the dead on the third day, he presented himself to the disciples. I think it's interesting, first of all, that one of the first people to be there at the, at the empty tomb on that first Easter morning was a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now listen to me. Of all people in the Gospels, Mary did not live an exemplary life. In fact, when she came to Jesus, she was demon-possessed. You think you're jacked up. This woman had multiple demon spirits living inside of her. She'd lived a very loose, moral, immoral lifestyle before coming to Christ. She came to Jesus with great shame. She was, she was looked down upon in society. If, if she lived in our world today, she wouldn't have been welcome in most churches. Just to be quite honest with you, she didn't fit in with religious people. But when she came to Jesus, Jesus forgave her of all of her sins, cast the demons, cleansed her life, 
gave her new life, and she was one of the first ones there that first Easter morning. We just read that in Matthew chapter 28. Mary Magdalene was one of the first ones at the tomb. Here's something that's interesting to me about a tomb. A tomb makes no sound. I've sat outside that garden tomb, and, and, if, and if I can get time when it's quiet, most of the time there are a lot of people parading through there, but I've had, I've had moments of silence where I got to just sit there and gaze at the tomb. And one thing I noticed about the tomb is that tomb wasn't talking to me. Now, there have been a lot of voices in my past that talked to me and said, you'll never be anything what you, but what you've always been. You'll be a failure, you'll go back to drugs, you'll go back to being a drunk, you'll go back to all that stuff that you've always been a part of. You are what you are and you'll never change. I've heard voices of condemnation saying you're a fake, you don't fit in with religious people, you're, you're a fraud, you're a hypocrite. I've heard all kinds of voices of accusation, but sitting there outside that tomb, I didn't hear a single word come out of the tomb. And neither did Mary that morning. She didn't have anybody saying, you're a whore, you're filthy, you're dirty, you're worthless, you don't deserve to be here. What are you doing here? That tomb didn't say a word because Jesus conquered her sin, buried it in the ground, resurrected again, and put it to shame for all eternity. There is no condemnation. You who sometimes were afar off or made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ, he's brought you in, he's accepted you. People may have rejected you, but God receives you. And because of Jesus, we'll accept you. And better than that, the Bible says he makes us sons and daughters. Man, he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, but he's more than that. He's made me part of his family. I'm part of the family of the redeemed. You're looking at a king's son this morning. You're a child of the king. If you've received Christ as your savior, you're God's child. John chapter 1 says he came unto his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, sons and daughters of God, even to those that believe on his name. I'm done. I just want to say this to you. After Jesus rose from the dead, he presented himself to 10 of the 12 disciples. Judas, who betrayed him, had already hung himself because he couldn't live with the grief of selling the son of God out for 30 pieces of silver. He hung himself. Thomas wasn't there that day. He presented himself to the other 10 disciples. And when those same disciples told Thomas that we've seen the Lord, he rose from the dead. He's resurrected. He conquered death just like he said he would. Thomas being the one we call the doubter, right? Y'all ever heard that term, doubting Thomas? Thomas being the doubter said, I'm not going to believe it. I don't believe it. Sticking redneck he was. I don't believe it unless I see it. He said, unless I'm able to put my hands I want to feel the prints of the nails in his hands, and I want to thrust my hand into the side that they pierce with a spear. He said, unless I see that, I'm feeling a little love handle on the side there, but he said, unless I see that, I was gone before vacation, but he said, unless I see that, I will not believe. Just a few short days later, Jesus appeared to the disciples again. This time, Thomas was there for church. And Jesus, knowing what Thomas had said, said, hey, Thomas, there they are, bud. Touch the prints. By the way, the only thing in heaven that was made by man are the scars in the hands of Jesus. Somebody ought to write a gospel song about that. There's a gospel song written about that. He said, touch the prints. Thrust your hand into my side. Thomas fell down and said, my Lord, I don't need to touch the prints, the nails. I don't need to touch your side. My Lord and my God, you're everything you claim to be. 
Jesus said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. But there are multiplied millions of people who are going to believe in me throughout the next dispensation that have never seen the prince. They've never visually laid their eyes upon me, but through eyes of faith, they're going to believe in me. And I'm here to ask you this morning, have you ever just stepped beyond that concept of, man, this Jesus story and Man, we go to church at Christmas. Some of y'all CME, CME people. Not CMA, sorry. <laughs> Some of you CME, you know, you go to church Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter. I'm not criticizing you, but, but I'm just saying that, that you've got to get past that point where, where this, this idea of Jesus is just really that. It's just this, this concept. Well, that's what mom and dad do. That's what grandma and grandpa did. We go to church during this time. You've got to get past that point to where Jesus becomes real in your life. Now, here's what I want you to know. We've all stepped out on faith. I've never seen Jesus with my eyes. I've never touched the prints of the nails in his hand. I, I stepped out and made a decision by faith to trust in him. Listen, it's a choice. I've chosen to live by faith and not by sight. You can say, well, that's naive. I don't believe anything that I can't see. If I can't see it, if I can't touch it, I don't believe it. That's not true. You believe in a lot of things you can't see can't see air, yet you breathe it every day. You can't see the wind that blows, and yet you feel the effect of a warm breeze. We trust in things that we can't see. We walk by faith every single day. All I'm asking you to do is put your faith in the Son of God. What do you have to lose? Trusting in Him. I've stepped over the threshold of unbelief into the realm of belief, and I've chosen to put my faith and trust in Jesus. Can I tell you, from the moment that that happened in my life, God changed me from the inside out. He made a difference in me, and I've never audibly heard the voice of God, but I've felt His touch in my life. And if you'll simply trust in Him, I'm not here to make you religious. I'm really not. I'd love for you to come to our church. I would love for you to do that, but that's not even my goal. My desire today is if you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, step over the threshold of doubt and just place your faith in Him. Here's what the Bible says. It says, with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. Only trust in Jesus. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed all across the room this morning. Heads bowed and eyes closed. We're going to have a song in just a moment. But more important than the song that they're going to sing, I want to call you to a place of decision. If you're here today and you've trusted in Christ, take this time to rejoice in the fact that your God rose from the dead. But if you're here today and you've never stepped beyond, it's just never become real to you. I want to ask you in your own words, just, as, just in your own simple words, to call on Jesus' name. Just simply believe in Him. Ask Him to come into your life. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. He will do exactly that. He'll erase your past. He'll, he'll redeem your future trust in him our heavenly father in jesus precious name we 
come in your presence in this place. And now, Lord, I pray that you would do what I could never do. Father, please speak into hearts. I pray that your voice would be so distinct. Lord, I remember, I remember the first night I heard you call my name. I remember how there was not a doubt in my heart that it was you speaking to me. I remember understanding clearly in that moment what I needed to do. And so what I'm asking, Father, without, without any pressure, without any, any fabrication of, or pressure from men, God, I pray that you would speak into every single heart. God, I pray that you would minister as only you can. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. I wouldn't ask you to come forward during this time. If you need someone to pray with, by all means, press your way through the crowd. But as they play and as they sing, I want you just to have that moment with God to reflect, to pray, to do what you need to do. Listen to this song. I was rich. I remember who I was. I was alone. I was blind I was running out of time Sin Separating The breach was far too wide But from the dark side Of the chasm You held me In your side So you Made a way Across the great divide Left behind heaven's throne to build it here inside. And there at the cross, you paid the debt I owe. Broke my chains, freed my soul for the first time I had hoped. Thank you, Jesus, for the There is nothing strong. 
for listening to the recovering fundamentalist podcast be sure to stop by our social media facebook instagram and twitter give us a follow also go to our website recoveringfundamentalist.org that's recoveringfundamentalist.org there you can find recovering fundamentalist swag you can get your t-shirts and hats you can join our x fundy community see where we're going to be having some meetups it's the recoveringfundamentalist.org be sure to join us next time for the recovering fundamentalist podcast